Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Netflix's new film, Mank. The story of Herman J. Mankiewicz writing the script for Citizen Kane, directed by David Fincher, his first film in six years. I'm a big Fincher fan. I'm excited to talk about it. We're also taking a look at Amazon Prime's Sound of Metal, the story of Riz Ahmed slowly losing his hearing over the course of a two and a half hour film. Uh, we're going to talk about some news. There's some big breaking big stuff. News. We're going to address briefly in the open with the other news. We're going to save our kind of larger conversation for it for Death of Cinema between our two reviews. So before we get to all of that, we need to talk about the news. And like I said, we're going to touch on this one and then have an expanded conversation in just a few minutes. The first headline, Warner Brothers smashes box office windows and will send their entire 2021 slate to HBO Max and theaters. Jesus, Andy, what is happening? What is <laughs> this, this is about? the end of theaters. For it's the time. end of the movies. Holy God. Um, this is some really, really big news. So Warner Brothers, after the disappointing release of Tenet in theaters and uh, this move to move Wonder Woman to HBO Max and kind of the reception that that was, which was, I think, fairly positive, has now decided, after consulting with scientists and epidemiologists, that they will move their entire 2021 lineup, which is 17 films, to a simultaneous release on HBO Max. It'll be on HBO Max for a month and will also be in theaters for a month, if not longer, um, before it kind of disappears. So we're talking hybrid releases. We're talking big movies straight to streaming, 17 films. And we're talking The Matrix. We're talking... Oh, I can't remember all of them. Oh, I, I got to pull that. All right. Allow pull me, up, please. Hit him. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're talking about movies like The Matrix 4, The Suicide Squad. That's the new one. Dune, Godzilla vs. Kong, Space Jam 2, Judas and the Black Messiah, Tom and Jerry, the Mortal Kombat remake, The Many Saints of Newark, the HBO Sopranos film. It's nuts. And that's just some of them. It's insane. <laughs> I've never yeah. heard of such a thing. I, I, I'm, I'm baffled. Well, it, you know, it, it's, it's very controversial, but it's the right move in a lot of ways because we... Releasing the theaters is just not going to be a moneymaker. Um, according to you know recent articles I read in the New York Times, they're anticipating it will take to about the summer to inoculate the entire country, even longer for people to feel comfortable. So if you're talking another you know nine to twelve months before people feel comfortable going into a theater, so that's I mean 2021 is basically lost to the theater. So they have to do something different. And Warner Brothers and and their parent company AT and T has decided. That streaming is the way to go. Streaming is the future. People want to watch things at home. And the pandemic is essentially accelerating what people already want. This is a, a frankly shocking development. I don't. We've never seen a film distributor, especially of the caliber of Warner Brothers, come out swinging like this. Remember earlier this year when Trolls World Tour came out and the CEO of Universal said famously, uh, at least on our show, uh, hey, we're going to consider pushing all of our films to streaming and theaters same day and that afternoon the ceo of amc pictures the biggest theater chain in 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 the country in in the world i think came out and said if you do that amc will never run a universal film again it was a whole how to do and universal backed down they said hey we can't do this warner brothers now has completely skipped that they didn't come <laughs> out and say hey we might they didn't come out and say hey we could they announced warner brothers and then uh, they announced Warner Brothers. They announced Wonder Woman 1984 was doing this on Christmas Day of this year, 2020. And then, out of a big surprise, everything. All of their movies were next year. 
I'm stunned. And I want to talk more about it in our middle segment. We have more to come. We're we got Christopher Nolan's it. hot take. We got to talk about how Gal Gadot is getting paid for Wonder Woman 1984 because that's a thing. We 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 got we got distributors and and production houses arguing. Legendary the pitchforks pictures are out, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a whole thing, and we're gonna talk about it after our mank review. So for now, let's move on to our next news story. We're coming back to this. Stay tuned. Our next story, Oscar Isaac is starring as Solid Snake in Sony's Metal Gear Solid movie. Andy, is this actually happening or is this fake news? Well, we're slowly crawling more and more to a Metal Gear Solid movie. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the Metal Gear Solid series is a five-game series. It's been, uh, I mean, I think the last 15 years, it's an uh, incredibly immersive uh, kind of espionage, spy kind of action role-playing game, uh, very deep and philosophical about humanity and war and all these things, is, is in addition to being like an action game. And uh, the main character, uh, Solid Snake, iconic video game character, is going to be played by Oscar Isaac. I think that's that's a great choice. What do you think? I, I think it's a good choice, too. I'm definitely a little skeptical. I mean, it's worth mentioning Sony has tried to get a number of video game pictures off the ground and had trouble all along the way. Somebody is quick to point out when this got announced, the Halo movie that they were working with on, on in tandem with Microsoft that never actually happened. That's all the way back in 2007. Somebody else pointed out the Uncharted movie, right? Uh, based on the Uncharted series of video games from Naughty Dog Productions. Um, that went through five directors before it was officially set in stone and now they're actually shooting. It went through a couple of primary actors too, including Nathan Fillion, Mark Wahlberg, and now Tom Holland, who is starring as Nathan Drake, the main character in those games so it's worth mentioning video game movies are typically not only risky but they're pretty much right up to the mark on the fence on everything we're never really sure who's going to be in it who's going to be cast who's going to be what have you but this is development this made waves this trended on twitter for a while and the fact is i think oscar Isaac could be a pretty good solid snake i'm a fan of the games so so if we I, can I talk get, as if i know if we can get the film made i think i think it will be great and i think he'll be a good uh, you know, so- solid snake. The issue I think with video game movies is that you don't have. It's not like a a book where you have a story to go off of, or a, a, at least a story that's written down. You kind of have to experience the story through playing the video game. So I think as a writer, it'd be very challenging. Like he would have to get something from the studio that's like some sort of story synopsis to then write a, a screenplay from. And I think it's just it's really challenging to get the parts rolling. Yeah, and it's also challenging to to come together, right? Like, you think of great video game films, there's not that many. There's a whole lot of flops. Only recently have we had ones that are particularly successful, namely Detective Pikachu from the Pokemon series, and the Sonic movie was pretty good, for what it's worth, and at least made its money back. Um, this is particularly concerning because the script for the game is, or script for the film is not being written by the writer of the games, a uh, man, man, man named Hideo Kojima. Uh, Hideo Kojima made these games strictly based off what he'd seen in American films. He's a Japanese creator, but the cover of the original Nintendo Entertainment System, Metal Gear Solid, is ripped right out of a, of, of a screen cap from the original Terminator. Um, mm. The main character, Solid Snake, his full name, uh, at least in Metal Gear Solid 2, is Snake Plissken, which is named after uh, the character... Uh, the main character from John Carpenter's Escape from New York, who's also named Snake Plissken. I mean, even even the the general design of the character, what with the bandana and the hair and everything, comes right out of John Carpenter's Escape from New York. He's 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 almost a ripoff of the character that Kurt Russell kind of penned. So 
it's weird, right? Like the the creator of the original games who made them based on the back of films is seemingly in no way involved with the film adaptation of his games. I don't know what that means. They're also pretty obscure. They're pretty obscure games, uh, and they, they definitely go to some strange places. Maybe that's for the best, that somebody can kind of dilute down his writing, but for what it's worth, uh, more to come. Keep it on off script for more news about the Solid Snake movie. Uh, sorry, the Metal Gear Solid movie starring Solid Snake. That's it. And one more headline before we get to Mank. Uh, Andy, you want to take this one? Because this one's a bit of a mess in your comic book, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Spider-Man 3, Alfred Molina returning as Dr. Octopus. So this is a little bit confusing. So the next Spider-Man in the Spider-Man, the Tom Holland uh, Spider-Man series, which started with uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, Spider-Man Far From Home, and then whatever the third one is going to be, it sounds like they're going to kind of bring back some actors from different, I mean, kind of eras of the Spider-Man films. And uh, Alfred Molina famously played Doc Ock in uh, the Spider-Man, the sorry, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man series in Spider-Man 2, which was, I think, probably the best in that trilogy. Uh, so it looks like they might be doing some sort of multiverse thing because they're also bringing back Electro, which was played by Jamie Foxx, uh, which was the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. So they're bringing together these different villains from different Spider-Man kind of properties, trilogies, and kind of putting them all all in one. Um, so I, I'm excited about this because he was a great villain. Some really kind of horror movie-esque things happened in that movie. So it's cool to see him back. It's hard to deny that's what's happening here, right? Because there's, there's certainly a possibility that maybe they're just reimagined versions of their character. At the end of Spider-Man Homecoming, we get a short scene with uh, the J. Jonah Jameson of Tom Holland's Spider-Man universe, also played by J.K. Simmons, who played J. Jonah Jameson in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man universe. All of these have been exclusive, of course. They're all different. None of them cross over with each other up until now, when suddenly we have some actors reappearing. Uh, when Jamie Foxx was announced to be returning as Electro, Jamie Foxx was Electro in Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man <laughs> series. That was the second one of the three that we've seen so far on screen. Uh, he posted on Instagram in a post that's since been deleted that he thought three different Spider-Men maybe could appear in the new film. Um, Marvel and Sony have had no comment on this. Jamie Foxx pulled the comment real quick. It's also worth mentioning uh, the new film. Will, I know it is wild. It's also worth mentioning the new film will star Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange from the Marvel films that we know. Obviously, Doctor Strange has the ability to hop through some multiverses, as is implied in his new film that's set, that they're working on called Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That ties in with Spider-Man multiverse as from the animated film Spider-Man is the multiple. So there's a lot of potential is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. It seems a whole lot like that's what's happening. Right. Right. So what a lot of happening is actually what we're seeing happen that happens in comic books all the time. Like multiverse is a staple of comic book writing. It, it allows you to have lots of different versions of the same character. You know, uh, DC right now is going through this big, like the dark multiverse uh, things. And they, they create a bunch of new characters through, through this. Um, and so that it's what Marvel, Marvel does that as well. And we're seeing it crawl over into film, which is something that they've kind of shied away from for a long time, but they're slowly starting to do. We saw it first kind of in, um, the Spider-Man, uh, what was the animated one? Uh, into the Spider-Verse? Into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> yes, it had multiple Spider-Men from different timelines. Uh, this kind of thing happens, all, like I said, all the time in, in traditional comic books, and it's crossing over into film. So it, it gives us, you know, t just allows us to have a lot of cool um, 
characters, bring back old characters, have, you know, it's going to be be really f- cool to see if Tobey Maguire puts the suit back on, if Andrew Garfield puts the suit back on. Yeah, I, I think there's certainly a lot of potential for this to be exactly what it looks like, right? There's also potential for it to not be that, just because J.K. Simmons plays J. Jonah Jameson in two different Spider-Man universes not necessarily mean that those ha- those universes aren't mutually exclusive, right? These gentlemen could easily be returning as just alternate versions of the same villains. Or, or, or may- I mean, who knows? We don't actually know. It's a whole lot of hearsay. But typically when there's a lot of smoke, that means there's a fire somewhere, Right. I think there could be something to this. I hope there is, honestly. I think it'd be a great innovation in the series and certainly be a smash hit for Sony. Um, why not, right? Uh, I, I And I hope they're not just lifting this idea right out of, like, Into the Spider-Verse because that movie was so brilliantly original. <laughs> and I would hate to see that idea just aped for, like, the live-action version for the mainstream audiences. Um, I, right. I, I hope it's not just exactly like a, re- a retelling of that. That, that right. would be a shame. They could just kind of, what they could do is just be pulling these villains and it just happens to be the same, you know, they're getting the same actors as opposed to recasting. Right. Because then you kind of yeah. got to do, if you if you recast Doc Ock, you kind of have to do like, you know, spend 10, 15 minutes on his origin or something like that. You can kind of skip over it a little bit. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, Alfred Molina was a really good Doc Ock. You're right. I think Spider-Man 2 was probably the best of those Sam yeah. Raimi films, so. I don't know. For more on comic book news, especially in the movies, keep it here on Offscript. For now, we need to jump to something finer, a finer mm-hmm. time in the 1940s. Uh, when 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 a young Orson Welles was working on this new film, uh, he was he was allowed to do anything from RKO Pictures. The movie is called, well, that movie was called Citizen Kane. The movie we're talking about is called Mank. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. So, Mank is the story of Citizen Kane, or really the screenwriter behind it. It's 1940, and the film studio RKO has hired a young, up-and-coming 24-year-old wonder kid called Orson Welles to create a new film for them. A film that would revive their their, their 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 movie picture house because it's just post Great Depression and boy do they need it. He's allowed to do anything he wants. He can put anything on screen. No studio will tell him what he can't do. And to make this new feature, to, 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 to boldly go into the unknown, Orson Welles hires an old, washed up, alcoholic screenwriter named Herman Mankiewicz. Mank is the story of Mankiewicz's writing of the screenplay, told through a series of flashbacks set throughout 1933 all the way up to 1940 when he's writing the screenplay. Uh, Mank is played by Gary Oldman. It is a David Fincher film. It's his first film in six years, like I said at the top of the show, and me being a Fincher fan, I'm very excited to talk about it. Andrew, what did you think Mm -hmm. of Mank? So I really liked it. And I, but I think it is suffering from kind of its own hype because uh, there'd been a, l- a lot of buzz about it. It's, you know, it's Fincher, it's Gary Oldman, it's Citizen, you know, invoking Citizen Kane. Um, I really like the style of the movie. It, it really invokes that 1940s Citizen Kane uh, aesthetic. It's in black and white. There's lots of, of shadows and uh, the different characters. And it, we're meeting real life characters that he will eventually base Citizen Kane on, which is largely about the newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, uh, played brilliantly by Charles Dance in this film. Oldman is, you know, he's acting, it's top-notch acting. He has several incredible monologues and just a lot of, 
subtle, subtle acting. Like you said, he's he's a drunk. He's he's kind of an addict. He's a philander. He's all these things. But he's a brilliant writer, and so they've kind of set him up to, you know, write the screenplay. He's out at some resort or some isolated place. He's got a uh, an assistant played by Lil- Lily Collins who does all all the typing. There's a lot of good things here. There's a, a lot about the political social kind of fervor uh, of the 30s and 40s that that kind of plays a role as well so overall i liked it but i think it is kind of suffering from hype i'm a little bit in the same boat um i would love to say this movie is incredible and it's the next great american picture but it kind of isn't it's got a lot that works in it though and i want to talk about what's successful I, i think it has a few pitfalls that ultimately make it fall short of what I hoped it would be, but there's also a lot in here that works. I think the best place to start talking about this is not the cast, it's not even the plot, it's the presentation. So, for people who aren't particularly familiar with David Fincher, his last film was Gone Girl in 2014. Since then, he has created two seasons of the show Mindhunter on Netflix. That's kind of been his pet project. That's kind of what he's been working on. And if you haven't watched it, Mindhunter is a brilliant piece of Fincher work. He directs a few episodes each season and he's showrunner, which basically means he's directing outside of the director's chair. He's getting everything together, keeping it all consistent, and he's writing for the show. Um... Mank is produced in collaboration with essentially Fincher's team from Mindhunter. This is his cinematographer from Mindhunter. This is his editor from Mindhunter and also his previous, I think, three films. This is his casting director from his last five films. This is his director of production designer from his last six films. This is Fincher's like team. These are his people that are coming together to make Mank. Mank is shot in 8K. And interestingly enough, they went back in post and ground it all down to make it look like a film from the 1940s. It's blurry. It has this kind of glow to the black and white. And yes, it's all in black and white. It's covered in film specks and spots and has cigarette burns in it and little hairs like it's running through a projector. The sound mix, and I should mention the soundtrack composed by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, we'll get to that in a minute, is brilliant, but it's mono which means all of their sound was mixed down to one particular track apparently they shut down post-production for three and a half weeks just to get the sound to sound like this movie is playing back in an old theater like it's coming out of a ancient speakers right they wanted it to feel like this movie was found in the back of like martin scorsese's film reel library in his basement they wanted this movie to feel like it fell right out of time and in a lot of ways I think it accomplishes that it's not perfect at presentation, but the work is there. And I think it's, that's so much of a setting of what's happening in the film. Yeah. The, like I said, the presentation, the aesthetic is really convincing that how much they have to make it look like it's from the thirties and forties, the dialogue, especially like you said, the camera work, you, you definitely feel transported. Another positive thing are the, the performances. We get obviously a really good performance from, uh, Gary Oldman as as Mankiewicz, no surprise there. But an, other standouts are Amanda Seyfried, who plays the the wife, the young wife of of William Randolph Hearst, and is a really kind of enigmatic role because she she kind of is the go between between more kind of liberal people like Mank and then kind of these magnates of or these titans of, of entertainment industry, Hearst and uh, Mayor, with as an MGM mayor. Um, and then we, we, of course, as I said before, we, we get the, the wonderful Charles Dance, uh, who you, I know him most from uh, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, t- as um, the elder Lannister. 
but it, he he's phenomenal in the this role as the you know this 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 tycoon who um you know he has so much power but you know you would never you know it but you don't at the same right. time so the the performances really stand out yeah no 100% um this movie in a lot of ways echoes what's happening in the film citizen kane um and this is a movie about making movies right so there's a lot of tributes to old hollywood and in a lot of ways, I think that hurts it. I think the script is, is is a little overly complex, especially in the first and second act, because you don't really understand Hollywood in the 1940s. Few people did, uh, and few people do now. So it takes a while to kind of get off its feet and get going. But being a movie about the movies, this movie is fortunately... Uh, based on a lot of realistic characters. These are people that actually lived. Uh, Gary Oldman plays Herman Mankiewicz, who is a real person. Apparently, he wanted to wear a prosthesis for the role, and Fincher, Fincher told him, no, I want a more authentic performance. So he doesn't actually look like Herman Mankiewicz, but hey, I think he's invested in the character enough, and he works the script enough to make it really feel genuine. And he's in almost every scene. I mean, the film is yeah. called Mank for a reason. It, it is strictly following him, his flashbacks, his experience writing the film. Amanda Seyfried plays Marlon Davies, Mar- Mar- Marlon Davies, I think, Mar- Marlo Davies, who was a real actress. She starred in something like 40 films, and she was huge back in the day. It's funny, in this movie, you never actually see any of that footage. They never actually referenced any of the films she was in, but she was a tremendous actress, and she was married to William Randolph Hearst, who was played by Charles Dance brilliantly in this role. All three of them are fantastic. And, and William Randolph Hearst is a real person and is actually, technically, the inspiration for the character Citizen Kane in the film. He's a bitter, frustrated man who has everything the world could ever give to him. He's accomplished everything he could. He lives in this giant palace. He has this bombshell wife. He has these brilliant connections. And somehow, he's still miserable. And he's the subject for Citizen Kane. He is who Mank is writing the film about. A man who has everything but somehow still isn't enough. Still wants for something more. Still still, still craves the love of the people around him. And all of this, of course, is wrapped up in Citizen Kane's uh, uh, creator, Orson Welles, and his his drive to get Mank to write the screenplay. Mank, at the beginning of the film, is recovering from an injury sustained in a car accident. Mank is an alcoholic, and, and Orson has him carted all the way out to La Paloma, this, this, this little ranch way out on the edge of California with no alcohol and no resources. And this is the 1940s, so certainly no internet and no phone, right? Um, just to go out there and write the screenplay in 60 days and Mank can still barely, barely pull it off. It's a whole thing. It's basically the first two thirds of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, it, it, it really, really gives a, 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 a complicated script. I think a lot of air for these actors and actresses to chew this scenery and they do a great job. They really do. Cause the script is hard. A lot of these lines are tough. This is 1940s dialogue. This is about a time that has long since passed and characters who are obviously not around anymore. This is, this is tough stuff. And Oldman kills it in the role. Amanda Seyfried's fantastic. And, and Charles dance is equally, uh, equally incredible. Yeah, ab- absolutely. The, now, something that doesn't uh, begin, I mean, there's a few things that don't work, but one thing, there are a lot of flashbacks. So the story takes, the present is him writing the script, which is in the 40s to uh, Citizen Kane, but there's flashbacks to the 20s and the earlier 30s. A lot of, you know, when when Mank was younger, when he was first meeting these people, when, like when he first met Marion Davies, Davies and William Randolph Hearst, when he first kind of established himself in Hollywood and everyone liked him, like even though he and, and Hearst are kind of at odds philosophically, 
they love having each other around. Like they say that like w- Willie loves having you around. Like he like just the way you are, the way you talk, your ideas. He you know he he if he's having an event, he's gonna in- invite Mank, even though these are very different people. But there's a lot of skipping around, and that kind of gets a little confusing throughout the movie. Yeah, I I think the script is a little problematic. Um, so the script is written by Jack Fincher, which is David Fincher's father, uh, before he passed in the late nine. Nineteen nineties, I think, is when he passed away. Uh, Fincher actually wanted to make this movie act- after he made the game uh, with Michael Douglas, and he could not get a studio to greenlight a black and white picture. They were like, "Absolutely not, we're not doing it," which is crazy. Like this is, I, I think he he he'd made seven after that, and he couldn't get somebody to greenlight a black and white film from the from the creator of the movie Seven. Really, like, just couldn't get it to happen. Um, but but that's where it was. So it's just kind of been residing in, in Fincher's file cabinet ever since. The script is really good. I think there's a ton of research here. I think there's a lot of, of genuine character arc and development. And a, and a movie about a movie, especially a movie about arguably one of the greatest film of all time, Citizens Kane, Citizen Kane, that's a tall order for any script writer. And I think Fincher does a really good job of capturing that. But one, you have very complex dialogue written and delivered in a style that audiences aren't used to. Two, you've got flashbacks and flash forwards all over the movie, which does a decent job of addressing, but like there were there were points in the first act I was just lost. And it's not like I was on my phone, like I was actively watching the film and at some point in, in the middle of a conversation I just realized I, I don't know what any of you're talking about. I'm lost. Yeah. And and three, and I think this is what hurts it the most from the delivery side ever since Fincher did the social network with Aaron Sorkin who wrote that film he kind of adapted Sorkin's style of writing to his style of delivery specifically they his actors and actresses deliver their their dialogue fast because that's how Sorkin does it he wants his dialogue to feel very real very punchy so it comes at you quick and there's not a lot of time to breathe so you got a complicated script with complicated lines and time skipping all over and the characters are delivering it quickly. It's a lot. And it was a lot for the characters. Uh, doing a little research after this, uh, it turns out the actors and actresses on set admitted that Fincher had them doing like over 100 takes of some of these scenes. Uh, Gary Oldman That's was insane. upset about this. Amanda Seyfried <laughs> was upset about this. Charles Dance was upset about this because Fincher's a perfectionist. He's, he's Kubrickian in that way. He will have them do it over and over and over and over and over again until they get it right. That had to have been hell on this movie. <laughs> There's no way that was easy. And it's a good movie, but I don't think it can overcome like the struggles of that. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was funny because it reminded me of Bombshell that we talked about last week and how that had a bunch of flashbacks and it kind of made the overall narrative a little confusing. They had the same issue here. The other part that, that kind of is a problem is it lacks kind of any... It, whatever central themes or messages trying to get across is a little unclear because there's like I said there's all these uh, there's a thing about the election there is uh, you know a lot of talk of, of Upton Sinclair who wants to run for governor and you know and it's a very much a, it's an age old uh, argument or disagreement it's uh, you know conservative America versus kind of a more li- liberal America and there's all these things about you know at one point. Uh, the studio starts kind of creating political ads, uh, you know, kind of a, do you want, you know, bums uh, getting off the train in California? These kinds of, is what what is the beginning of political propaganda in the form of a film? Um, but it just never really says a whole lot about these things. It has these kind of 
touches on these topics that are deeper and more profound and more important, but then it just it never really coalesces into kind to some sort of central theme or message, and it just doesn't really know what to do with it. Yeah, um, it's funny because our our other our other film we watched this week, Sound of Metal, actually does a really good job of this of like really bringing it all home to like a central theme and a point. Mank doesn't really do that. <laughs> Mank kind of presents a host of ideas um, and kind of leaves you to, to figure it out at the end. And and you're right. There, there's whole points we're not addressing here. There's a huge prevalent theme in here about, about the dangers of socialism and communism in 1940s Hollywood following the Great Depression. This is, this is an industry that was very much struggling to get by, to entertain the masses in a time when people didn't want entertainment. They wanted help and financial freedom. Um and, and, and Upton Sinclair comes along in California and says, hey, I believe in the people. I believe in the working class. And the higher ups in Hollywood said, absolutely not. We, we believe in, in capitalism and keeping, you know, the bottom feeders on the bottom and the top people on the top. That's us. We want to stay high on high and mighty in our ivory towers. That's a whole bit in this movie. There's a whole like probably Class hour and change thing, yeah. yeah, devoted to Mank from 1933 to 1940, slowly coming to this realization that 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 film studios are now trying to bend reality as we know it and create political ads that that look real but really have the magic of cinema behind them. That that's interesting. That's captivating. But that should probably be its own movie because ultimately that doesn't build to anything um I don't know, grand here. Yeah. It's just kind of there and then it goes away and the movie ends. Yeah, I, I, I tried to see, you know, is a movie about, you know, sticking to your ideals and your guns because that's kind of what doesn't happen famously in Citizen Kane is he starts out as a young idealistic person and kind of loses himself at, through success and that's mirrored in uh, William Randolph Hearst. But like I said, we, we don't really... Whatever message or theme it's trying to get across doesn't come across very clear. And like I said, there's lots of different parts. And like like you said, it's shot really well. The style is is amazing. The they nailed the look and the sound. But it's the overall story and plot just kind of is lacks cohesion. Yeah, it's it, I don't know. It, it's it's a little like a really good play, right? You go see it and you think, man, that was excellent. Somebody says, what was it about? And you're like, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm not sure, but everybody was great in it and it looked awesome and like, it's really good. And I think that's ultimately what works great about this film. I think Fincher's filmmaking technique is spot on. I think where the trouble is, is I frankly, and this is going to sound distance insensitive. I don't mean for it to, but I think he was just tied to this script way, way more than he would have had it been written by anybody else. And he, and he loved it and he wanted to pursue it. And he's been thinking about this movie for 20 years and he finally got to make it and he made it his way. Netflix gave him the ability to do that. That's why this movie happened at Netflix. That's why Fincher did this at Netflix. And that's why, that's why Fincher just signed a four year deal with Netflix to keep making films over there because they gave him the budget and they gave him the means to do this thing that no other studio would. And I think that's powerful, especially in the light of what this movie is a movie about making movies. But I also think maybe he went a little too far, right? Maybe yeah. he needed a little check a check on power for somebody to come along and say, hey, this, this doesn't really work. This doesn't really make sense. But it's Fincher's team. It's Fincher's people. And it's Fincher's vision, right? It's Fincher's world. We're all just living in it. I mean, that, so, that's what seems to kind of happen with Netflix movies because they just write you a check and say, go wild. And the, you get these directors who kind of maybe need some reining in. You know, uh, The Irishman's another example. Like, that's a great movie. It's three and a half hour, hours long. <laughs> like, come on, man. That's 
that's it's just it, like it allows they allow directors to be pretty indulgent and that's not always a good thing no but that indulgence can play for certain audiences and i think that's ultimately who mank is made for it's not made for everybody but there's certain people out there that i think it's perfect for and i'm excited to talk about who that is so with that being said oh my god andy hold on i didn't actually talk about the soundtrack yet <laughs> we gotta before we get to recommendations any thoughts on the soundtrack you know i really can't remember it did it did not stand out to me oh oh okay. like, well, I don't, me. I, like i'm not saying yeah i'm not saying it's bad but it's i it's not memorable i can't I was like, um, wow, I need, I need, yeah, I can't remember I'm in the opposite camp. I, I adored this soundtrack, um, but maybe again, I was, I was coming in real hot on wanting to like this movie, so for what it's worth, maybe that's where I'm, That's maybe that's where my head's at. Uh, the soundtrack is by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, the minds behind Nine Inch Nails. You may think at first, well, hold on, those are the guys that make that nasty metal music. I don't want to listen to that, but that's not true. Uh, since Nine Inch Nails, uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have been producing soundtracks for many of Fincher's films. I think since The Social Network, they did Gone Girl, they did... Um, I've done a lot. Three or four of his films now? Yeah. And they do the soundtrack for this. Uh, They were insistent on using all musical instruments from the 1930s and 1940s. They recorded this all on mics from the 30s and 40s because they wanted it to have this kind of old-timey sound. And it's a host of swing music jazz music there's some lonely tones in here there's some noir there's it's it's i think it added up to be like 83 shorter tracks instead of making like 15 nice long tracks you do for a soundtrack they made like 83 short tracks and string them all together across various scenes there's a Bandcamp page where you can get the actual album i probably need to go purchase it myself i adored the music in this movie it is super good (laughs) i i loved it so if you do watch it Try try to keep an ear out because it's easy to miss. Andy's right. If you're not looking for it, you probably won't even hear it. But I, the soundtrack is excellent. Excellent stuff. I hope if this movie gets nominated for anything, and it probably will because this seems like prime Oscar bait, I hope, I hope best score is certainly considered. It's really good stuff. And I think this movie will be a good test for, you know, they say Hollywood likes movies about Hollywood. Let's see how this does come award season. Because if this, if this one takes away a bunch, I'm going to be surprised. But, you know, a couple here and there. Maybe set design, soundtrack, maybe a best best actor actress. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if it picks up uh, a couple of nominations uh, in some in one category or another, either being acting or or writing. I mean, there are good things about it. It just as a whole, it, it doesn't amount to an incredible movie. Right. It's not bad. It's just kind of lukewarm, and, and in a lot of ways, that's all it needs to be. So, with that being said, Andy, any other thoughts for recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Mank? I think I would if, if you're a big film buff, if, you're, if you've seen Citizen Kane. It, it really helps to have seen that movie so you know what kind of be, is being evoked uh, in this. Really good performances. I mean, it, it's a good movie. It's one of the probably top movies to come out this year. Um, it does kind of fall short of being a, a great film or, a, you know, kind of a masterpiece. Like it, it kind of looks like the kind of film that would be that, but it really kind of falls short kind of plot story wise. But there are good performances. It is really interesting to watch and and listen to. So and it's on Netflix. So if you're subscribed, then uh, it's available to you now. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty much in the same camp. I would recommend this movie, but only to certain people. If you're a huge film buff, 100%. If you love Fincher, go for it. If you're a big Citizen Kane fan, honestly, 
I think this serves as a pretty good double feature because in many ways, it, it, I mean, it's got the same style. It's got the same presentation as Citizen Kane. That was a big part of this. So I think in a lot of ways that works. If you're the kind of person who's like, I'm not sure if I would ever really enjoy a black and white film. This film is not for you. Full stop. You're not going to like what's <laughs> happening in this movie. It's not made for you. You're not going to like the dialogue. You're not going to like the tone, and the presentation. But if you're somebody who can appreciate a good black and white film every now and again, you might give it a shot. Because it's not a perfect film. It, it may not even be a great film, but it's got some damn good set pieces and it's got some real good acting and it's got some fantastic moments that I think really stand out and, and make it something worth watching for those people, I should say. And that's uh, my hot take on, on Mank. Man, I really hope Fincher makes more movies. <laughs> <laughs> he's taken a few long breaks in his career. Uh, he's made 10 movies across what, like, like 20 years or something. So it's like, dude, you got to start making more films, but, uh, you know, he, he's taken breaks before, so we'll see. Hopefully he's got this deal with Netflix. Hopefully we see something coming out of him soon. So that's that. And with that being said, Andy, oh my God, we need to talk about the death of cinema. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, please, um, take it away. <laughs> this is the death of cinema. So we're going to be kind of digging into our big Warner Brothers story of them sending their entire slate of uh, 2021 films to hybrid streaming theatrical release. This has blown up hugely since this kind of dropped last uh, last week. Um, Christopher Nolan came out furious, uh, really lambasting his his because he works for Warner Brothers. He's made films for them. you know, saying that they're a terrible streaming service to, to do this, that, you know, no one was consulted. That's part of why this is not going over well, is that they didn't tell anyone they were in it. Like, they didn't co- quietly contact directors, producers, distributors, uh, talent to let them know, hey, this is what we're thinking. They just went for it, probably because they knew it would, it would be a negative reaction. But th- there's a lot of kind of caveats with this. They can't just release. There's a lot of shared ownership in these pictures, like Legendary uh, owns like 75% of the King Kong vs. Godzilla movie and Dune. Um, there's things like back-end profit sharing that a lot of stars count on, uh, which you're not going to get if you release the streaming. So that's an issue too. So while Warner Brothers has taken a really bold step in kind of d- deciding to release straight to streaming, there's a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of things they didn't seem to really account for. So <laughs> let's let's kind of walk it back a little bit to that that mention I made earlier about Universal and AMC shutting down Universal and saying, hey, no, you are not going to dump your films in theaters and on streaming at the same time. It's unacceptable. We wrote on your movies. That was news. We talked about it on the show when it happened, and it was certainly news when Warner Brothers just kind of randomly announced at the end of the year, hey, Wonder Woman 1984, that movie we've been pushing back all year, it's coming out Christmas Day in theaters, but also on HBO Max for no additional cost. That was a big deal, and AMC didn't say anything. And the reason they didn't is because Warner Brothers has clout. Warner Brothers puts asses in seats, frankly. (laughs) Warner Brothers produced Tenet. And they pushed it in theaters and they forced like 70% of theaters to open in the hopes that Tenant would kickstart the theater industry again. And it bombed horribly, failed miserably for them. They made a little money. I'm not even sure they made enough money back on Tenant to yeah, justify it. I mean, in I mean the US, it was I don't think. Like, it wasn't a complete bomb, but it, it should have been an $800 million to $1 billion property. 
um, and they made just under four hundred million. Right, which is like between, which is barely breaking even. Yeah, between the cost to make the film and and a year and a half of marketing that should have only taken half a year because we had coronavirus pushing it back, um, they had to scramble. And Christopher Nolan, the director of Tenet and a Warner Brothers staple who has made most of his previous films at Warner Brothers, especially as at least since Memento back in 2002, he was adamant. This is coming out in theaters. I don't care. I'm not doing streaming. Streaming is stupid. He's like the modern Spielberg in that he lives in a freaking bubble and he's in way over his head on this stuff. You know, I read in all this, Andy. Steve Christopher <laughs> Nolan doesn't use a smartphone and doesn't get email. He has, he has people print the stuff he's out got for him pe- and give people, it to him. On he's air. got people for yeah. that. Yeah, the guy lives in a bubble. He's completely disconnected from like what actual audiences want, and that's part of what's frustrating here. But Warner Brothers played his game and they put his movie in theaters. They advertised it on freaking Fortnite of all places. We talked about that on the show too, and it didn't work. So now Warner Brothers has some decisions to make, right? Now Warner Brothers needs to start making money because here's the facts. Warner Brothers, A, (laughs) has not been running movies all year. And Warner Brothers is the studio that produces typically the biggest films with the largest budgets. Dune had 175 million. Godzilla vs. Kong had $160 million. This is money that's already been spent that hasn't been made back yet. It's also worth noting, Warner Brothers recently bought some big properties. They made some big purchases a couple years ago that they're still trying to pay off. They need to start turning out cash. They have to start making money. And they bungled the whole HBO Max launch, and nobody knew how that all worked. And it's still not on Roku, so a lot of people still can't get it. In short, Warner Brothers needs to start turning a profit, all right? <laughs> that's that's the way this goes, or else they're going to be in trouble. At least I think. that they, Nobody has announced that, but that's my hot take. Uh, why wouldn't they at this point, right, um, considering the evidence? So they announced Wonder Woman 1984 coming out to both, and it kind of goes over well, and it turns out, oh, snap, consumers really want this. Turns out bringing films to consumer d- devices is consumer-friendly. And then they announce... It's coming everywhere. All of our movies next year <laughs> come straight to phones. That's when that's when it hit the fan. That's when it all went crazy. Well, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I was reading some comments today, and most people are excited for things to big movies to come out at home t- to come out on streaming. I mean, I think audiences have wanted hybrid releases for a long time. They want the the choice to watch at home or stay in theater. And more and more, as busy as people are, especially now with the coronavirus. People want to stay home, and if you give the op- give them the option, that's what they're going to prefer. I, I did read in one of these articles at the very bottom, AT and T, which is Warner Brothers' owner, said, "You know, we are in- we are not interested in the legacy business. We are interested in the consumer business. And if you focus on the consumers, you're you're you know you're never going to go wrong. And so they're th- what they're saying is like." We don't care what happens to theaters. That's not our business. That's not what we're here to do. The consumers want things at home. We're going to bring it to them. Yeah, and and I think that's a reasonable way to feel. Um, you know, they they said in here, who is this? Uh, Toby Emmerich, Warner Brothers Pictures Group chairman, had some had some hot takes on this stuff, and he said very simply, "We have these movies just sitting on a shelf. Consumers are starved for content. They need to start making money back." 
HBO Max is the best way to do that. As soon as they announced Wonder Woman 1984 coming to both services, they saw a boon in subscriptions. People started signing up. And very coincidentally, the day they announced all of their 2021 films were coming to HBO Max for no additional cost. You can just subscribe and you'll get them same day. They also very conveniently started removing any ability to try out a trial service. Yeah, they removed all the trial service. Yeah, you have to sign up and pay the price of admission to get it every sign up's what 14 bucks a month it costs about that to go to the movies nowadays at least on a friday night maybe a little less but for what it's worth like they're gonna make money they're gonna make bank and they need it now yeah. who's upset about this <laughs> a lot of people well i, I did want to say audiences typically go to one to two movies or, or they go to one mo- movie either one to two months every year so you're you're talking six to 12 movies maybe and that's for someone who goes a lot um, not not including us, but so that just says that audiences don't go to the theater as much as people think, and they only come out for kind of really big show pieces. So, you know, theaters were struggling before, but they had a lot of power. Now they don't have that power. Yeah, and 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 I've talked. We've talked about this on the show before. Like watching stuff streaming at home is not that bad. Like there's there's this idea that. Oh, well, if you're watching it streaming, you're just going to watch it on your phone, and that's not the way to watch cinema. Yeah, okay, sure. Or I can watch it in a theater with some idiot on his phone behind me, or two kids talking, or somebody chewing popcorn super loud, or somebody trying to get past me to go to the bathroom in a crowded theater. Like, it's not that much better watching a movie at the movies. I like watching films in theaters, but I also like watching stuff at home, in the comfort of my own palace, where I got my sound bar, and I got my sick TV, and I could fire that thing up and turn the lights off and enjoy it in my own space just because it's online does not necessarily mean people are going to watch it on their phones and you know what if they do frankly that's pro-consumer welcome to capitalism like uh, here's how yeah. movies are made this is well, how we do it so i i get being frustrated that's not coming directly to theaters but it is in theaters for those who want it all of these films will be you can go get the theatrical experience well especially now where First of all, it's not safe to go to a theater in a large group, and it will probably not be another 9 to 12 months before that is a safe thing to do. And so at home makes sense. Also for people who, you know, if you have young kids, if you have a big family, now you're talking about a $15 a month subscription for your entire family to watch Wonder Woman or The Matrix or or whatever big movie is versus, you know, buying four tickets plus drinks popular like it's going to be a money saver for anyone in a lot in a household larger than one yeah you know i'm frustrated by amc's response to this um this is the company that that immediately responded to universal and said hey you know we're we're not going to tolerate this the, the the CEO of AMC, Adam Aaron, had this to say. He said, these coronavirus impacted times are uncharted waters for all of us. This is why AMC signed on to an HBO Max exception for one film only, Wonder Woman 1984. So they didn't do it for Universal, but they said, well, you're Warner Brothers. It's fine. You tried to save us with, with Tenet. It's okay. Now they're big mad that they're doing it with all of their films. And, and, and like on the one hand, I get it. Like I understand. But this comment here... As for AMC, we will do all in our power to ensure that Warner does not 
what what is it subsidize its HBO Max startup at our expense? We will aggressively pursue economic terms that preserve our business. Dude, I'm so tired of that nonsense. Like you're one of a series of competitors. You guys get nowhere without companies like Warner Brothers. So this idea that Warner Brothers needs you in the age of streaming service is just straight bunk, bro. <laughs> well, I, I don't believe it. I bet they make more money on HBO Max than they make at AMC. That's not, what I think. Not only is it. Yeah, not only do they do they not need theaters, theaters have zero leverage now. It used to be, you know, in normal in pre-COVID times, you needed theaters if you want to make eight hundred million, a billion dollars. You need the global box office take. That's not an option now. So you you can't. That's what theaters could leverage before. Now they can't leverage anything because you're not making any money in theater. So like AMC has zero leverage. Cinemark like the theaters have no leverage. They they have no nothing to offer the the theaters. Yeah, dude. And and you don't see like AMC lobbyists out there like in front of in front of the like the, the Congress and Senate like pitching to like coronavirus relief. You don't see them like donating millions of dollars to finding a vaccine. They're not doing any of that. They're just talking a big game, putting in freaking hand wipes and acting like theaters are okay. They drove so many people to go see ten it. They were so desperate to get people back in seats. And then when they actually showed up, what did they find? Standard issue concession prices. They didn't even discount them like Cinemark. Dude, I, I'm over AMC. I really am. And this is from somebody who worked at AMC for like three years. I, also, I want to talk about... Go ahead. Oh, I said also... Um, it's important to remember that uh, as far as profit-wise, you know, everything has to be split with, with the theater, usually 50-50, if not uh, sometimes more, or less rather. Um, but if... Everything's on a streaming service. That's a hundred percent profit. I mean, I'm sure there's operating expenses, but that's a hundred percent revenue that goes to uh, the stu- the studio. It, they're not having to split, and so they don't actually have to make near as much money. It's hard for me to believe anybody at Warner Brothers. It's hard to believe the higher ups at Warner Brothers, I should say, are actually excited about this idea. And I, I think that's worth mentioning. I don't think they want to do this. I don't think they. this has been like some grand plan for the past decade that we're going to like just announce all our movies are going to streaming. They would love it if theaters were open. They would love it if none of this had happened. This is a response to a problem that they are pivoting. They're trying to figure out what their next move is. They're still going to do revenue sharing. Like theaters are still going to make money. AMC will get some ridiculous deal like they got with Universal to make a little bit of profit off of a service they are in no way subsidizing. Gal Gadot, it's worth saying, uh, is getting $10 million for Wonder Woman 1984 going straight to HBO Max as well. And also Patty Jenkins is getting an additional payout on top of her salary for that. That wasn't initially, you know, a part of the deal. You know who negotiated that? It's also worth pointing out. They're lawyers. <laughs> like that wasn't that wasn't like Warner Brothers came forward and said, "Hey, we're going to pay you ten million dollars. Cool, thanks." Like they had to specifically seek that out. And and the point is, Warner Brothers is trying to play ball. Warner Brothers is paying. Warner Brothers isn't stamping their feet. They're saying, "Look, we understand these are unprecedented times." They said they said when asked about it, Toby Emmerich said. Uh, uh, I don't know where exactly it is, but he said something along the lines of, oh, no one wants films back on the big screen more than we do. We know new content is the lifeblood of theatrical exhibition, but we have to balance this with the reality that most theaters in the U.S. will likely operate a reduced capacity throughout 2021. This is a unique one-year plan. I'm not sure about that, but like, that- <laughs> I, I don't think they chose this is what I'm saying. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, like Christopher Nolan said himself, you have to rethink the business model. You have to rethink the business. It's not going to go, you can't just wait for things to go back to the way they were. We may never go back to the way things were. Now, I do, 
I, I think this idea that this is a one-year plan only is not not true. I think, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. If if they do this and it's a huge hit and, you know, w- way more people stay at home and they get tons of subscribers, they're not going to stop. It, and, you know, people, I mean, people prefer to stay at home. They prefer to watch things at home or at least have the option to if they want. So if this turns out to be a huge success for Warner Brothers and HBO Max, we're not going back. Yeah, and and on the one hand, like that's a little frightening, right? Change is scary. On the other hand, like, dude, if AMC goes under, I got three other theaters I can go to in town within twenty minutes of my apartment that aren't owned by AMC. There will always be theaters. I'm convinced of that. I don't think there's ever going to be a day when the last movie theater in the world closes down. There's still a freaking blockbuster standing and functioning. Okay, movie <laughs> theaters are going to stick around as long as there's movies. This idea that they're all going to go away or just be gone one day is absurd. It's 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 ridiculous propaganda cooked up by big studios and big big theater corporations that are afraid of change. Warner Brothers is embracing it. Consumers want it. Like all I've seen in the comments of every one of these posts is a damn Warner Brothers is swinging. And two, I can't wait to go sign up for HBO Max. Like people are all about it. And that's not a bad thing. Being pro consumer is not a bad thing. It it never should be. Yeah, uh, and just a quick detail. So HBO Max only has about 8 million subscribers, which is not a lot. In contrast, Disney has about 50 to 60 million, Disney Plus, and um, Netflix, the the big dog in the room, has about 150 million. So there is a lot of pie to be eaten, and HBO Max is trying to get a piece of that. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Before we move on, because I know we spent way too long talking about this, I do want to talk about Christopher Nolan's response. This came out yesterday. Uh, Christopher Nolan, of course, we mentioned him. He's the director of Tenet. He is a Warner Brothers mainstay. The guy is all about being at Warner Brothers. He is shocked. Uh, Andy, you got this up? Do you want to quote him or can I? Uh, You can. Uh, He said, quote, some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before this announcement thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out they were working for the worst streaming service. He said Warner Bros. had an incredible machine for getting a filmmaker's workout everywhere, both in theaters and in the home, and they are dismantling it as we speak. They don't even understand what they're losing. Their decision makes no economic sense, and even the most casual Wall Street investor can see the difference between disruption and dysfunction. Andy, hot takes on this. Because I got hot takes. Scathing. Um, I mean, Christopher Nolan is upset. He is an advocate for the theatrical experience. But, you know, he's forgetting that, you know, these are businesses that have to try and make money. And having films just sit on the shelf for what is essentially another year or you're at least going to miss the the summer blockbuster season just really isn't, isn't acceptable. You have to find something to do. And it's like... Waiting for theaters to be open and be safe is just not a realistic plan. Yeah, I, I'm 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 frustrated by his comments. Like I said, I think Christopher Nolan lives in a bubble. He's a lot like Steven Spielberg that way. Like the movie theaters they're going to are private screening rooms with industry professionals who respect cinema and aren't going to step out of line. They're going to be nice and sit there quietly in their movies and they're going to do their thing. They are not going to to AMC theaters in Grapevine, Texas with like every, every other theater goer who does not care and is on their phone for half the film. Like they're out of touch. They're out of touch. And this idea that, well, boo hoo, my movies aren't going to go to theaters. Well, maybe try making something new. Hmm. 
Or maybe try making a, a movie that doesn't have an audio mix. It's so atrocious. Phones can't mm-hmm. turn it out to sound like anything reasonable. Like maybe try making stuff that's a little bit more consumer friendly. Or you know what? Get cozy with this idea that your theaters, your movies will still run in theaters, just maybe a few less, right? I think of, of, of uh, uh, oh God, what's his name? I don't well, know. I, I I think of indie theater, indie films we've seen at movies like movie theaters like the Texas Theater, right? A theater with one screen that's running like little indie pictures. Some of the best films of the years we've been doing this show I have seen on that screen. It is not mainstream stuff. It is not mainstay stuff. But just because your film is unique does not mean it has to be exclusive. It can be anywhere. Like anybody can experience it. So this idea that Warner Brothers is screwing the world by completely abandoning what they've always done is ridiculous it's it's old hat i'm tired of it well and it's all it's almost like these big you know multiplex cinemas uh it reminds me a lot of malls which the mall had its heyday and we've kind of moved on from that structure and we still have shopping centers but they're just very different that's how i feel theaters like like you said we have the independence like texas theater or small chains like alamo draft house i think things like these cinemas will be successful they will but they're gonna have to adjust and change maybe you don't need you know a 30 screen multiplex you know maybe it's half that or le- or 10 screens or five screens or or something you know i think alamo draft house generally has less than 10 so we're still going to have theaters but we'll probably have fewer they'll probably be smaller maybe open fewer days a week like we they will still continue to exist it will we'll just have to adjust to whatever the new models are yeah there's obviously more to come on this story. Uh, something we didn't get to is Legendary Entertainment, the producers of Dune, potentially suing Warner Brothers. Nothing's really happened there, but this is a developing story as in, as of the recording of this episode. Next week, we will have more on this. I'm sure more will come. I mean, to, to hear Hollywood tell it, everybody's mad about this in some way or another. So, I mean, for what it's worth, I, I can't shake this idea that like <laughs> when everybody in Hollywood is pissed, and the whole internet is excited and signing up for a service because they're looking forward to like being a part of this thing. I have trouble thinking it's a bad thing, right? Maybe this is the movie pass of 2020. Maybe this is like the most half, half baked harebrained idea Warner brothers has had ever had, or maybe it's revolutionary and they're doing something new. They're doing something people want and they're doing something that ultimately is a good service. I don't know. Time will tell. Yeah. We will see. We will see. And with that, Andy, I'm so sorry. We spent way too long on this. (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) I got fired up. I was hot. Uh, We should talk about our final film of the episode. Andy's graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Andy, please take it away. Sound of Metal. You sounded great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. We don't need to to put them all out. I know, but we just need to film it. So this is a new drama starring Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cook. Uh, Riz Ahmed plays Ruben, who is a heavy metal drummer in a, in a two-person band with his girlfriend Lou, played by Olivia Cook. Um, they are recovering addicts. We lo- we learn this in the opening kind of opening scenes of the movie. They they have a tour bus. They have a lot of equipment. They they seem to be in what is a successful group. You know, they they have tours. They can feed themselves. You know, they're making some money. Um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Ruben loses his hearing. Oh, just about loses all of his hearing, almost completely. Um, 
he free, he kind of he gets through a show he freaks out and eventually he sees a, a doctor who says you know you have about 20 to 25 percent of hearing left in both your ears and it's not going to get any better there is no like there is no fixing this and so i thought this movie was going to be about this guy slowly losing his hearing over the course of two hours he kind of goes deaf from in the first 12 minutes um uh, i i clocked it yeah. um, so so the movie is more about what does life look like now because he is a drummer he's a musician who has completely lost his hearing and they're also um lou is very much afraid that this sudden deafness will result in a relapse in, in into addiction. They have been clean for several years, but you know it doesn't take take much to kind of just fall back into it. Um, they eventually find a re- recovery place center uh, specifically aimed at hard of hearing uh, deaf people, and Ruben decides to stay there and, and kind of see if he can cope and learn and see if he can get his hearing back as well. So that's kind of our, our setup uh, for this film. I really love this. I, I thought it was fantastic. I, I'm going to go on a limb and say this is the best film that I've seen this year so far. Um, because it, it tells this powerful story about someone essentially becoming disabled and having to cope with that. This isn't... I, th- I thought this would kind of fall into some pitfalls and stereotypes about musicians or about um, addiction, and it, it completely doesn't. It, it steps over all these these stereotypical things, and it's, like I said, it's really about um, a character's inability to accept what is happening to him. Um, and at the same time, you have this brilliant uh, sound design because the sound is such an important part of the film. You hear... Like Ruben is hearing some at the beginning of the film, everything is very crisp, very sharp. You know, he's cleaning, he's cleaning out uh, their tour bus, and he's, uh, you know, he's dusting with this. He's using the the blender, and all these sounds really pop. And then, kind of out of nowhere, it just goes, and all of a sudden, it's this muffled thing. And so you you get this brilliant soundtrack or or sound design where you get to experience things like him and some of the other um, people in the film. So I thought this was excellent. I really liked it. Zach, what do you think? So glowing praise uh, from you. I didn't know this was, <laughs> might be your favorite film of the year so far. That's crazy. Um, I don't know if anything will unseat this, like because we're getting. I mean, we're getting down to it. We're running out of year. So it's <laughs> true. Um, that's a g- glowing review uh, from Andy. So <laughs> I didn't like it as much. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's, that's fine. Like, that's what we're here that's to talk the short. about. But I, th- I think I think there's some interesting perspective why I didn't. Um, I, I didn't I didn't like this movie actually for a handful of personal reasons, which is a terrible reason to criticize a film. But I wonder if you may have liked it for the opposite reason. See, Andy uh, has a background as a musician, right? Your your mm-hmm. hearing is very important. <laughs> like Absolutely. So so the idea of a musician suddenly and abruptly losing their hearing is uh, really intriguing. Me, uh, I got a bit of a hearing disorder. <laughs> In my right ear. I've done a lot of the stuff he does in this movie. I've done the hearing tests. I've done the somebody explaining to you, hey, your hearing's going away and it doesn't come back. It sucks. So in a lot of this movie, I was like cringing in my seat, dude. Like this movie makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Like in a lot of ways it is like this, this, this feeling he has and this look on his face. I'm just like, oh God, I felt that. And that's part of why this movie is so effective. Because it feels so genuine. I've never seen a movie about, like, essentially acquiring a disability like this. Um, it's really horrifying. And Riz Ahmed does a great job in the role. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. I I, I didn't 
feel as as glowing as Andy did about it, but I, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it a whole lot in the last few days, and most good films I usually do that with. So there's <laughs> something here I love. I just maybe haven't found it yet. Mm-hmm. What's the best place to start talking about this, Andy? Uh, well, let, let's start with our, our plot. So like I said, we have our two characters, Ruben and Lou. Uh, they're very much in love and in this uh, heavy metal band. And his hearing his hearing goes and it goes uh, abruptly, which um, apparently is, is very rare, but, but can happen. And by the way, I've actually had some... I, I kind of had a scare with uh, my hearing at, at one point where uh, I kind of started to hear a lot of distortion in one ear, and I did the same thing. I went to to a doctor, did the ear tests, and luckily they they said, well, it's kind of like when you overload an amp. It's just like it's crackling, but you're not like your hearing isn't actually like damaged or losing. So it was very very fortunate. Yeah. Um, so I've kind of had a, a brush with this as well, and, and a lot of that is from from loud music. Uh, like I said, the heart of the movie is is more about. Addic- their positions as addicts or former addicts and that they're very scared of kind of falling back back into that and you know when Ruben goes to kind of this commune or therapy recovery rehab center is is really a big part of the movie and it's interesting because I, at first I thought that this addiction uh, subplot was just like you know Oscar bait but it's really kind of a foil for um, you know this acquisition of a disability because as an as an addict that they accept you know the first step is admitting you have a problem they admit they have a problem but Ruben refuses to when he first loses his hearing he refuses to accept what's happening um so I think (laughs) you you pretty much got the you pretty much got the bones down Um, I think him abruptly losing his hearing is stark right because yeah I was like you I figured oh over the course of the film it's slowly going to get worse no it's pretty much immediate um, and his initial kind of denial of it is really interesting. It says a lot about his character because the characters are not just like drug addled metalheads in this movie. It's actually quite a surprise. Uh, after our opening cards, our, our characters wake up in this RV, they're on tour and they're eating healthy. They're eating smoothies and like fresh strawberries and produce. Our, our main character is doing push-ups. Like he's he's staying healthy. They're actually former addicts, right? They're they're not actually yeah. addicts anymore. And and that was a bit of a misstep for me. I think that makes them unique characters. But for me, I was kind of thrown out of it because I was like, no metalhead in the world eats that for breakfast. <laughs> like that's a, these aren't real people. Um, <laughs> And that, and that was that was not a great foot for me to start watching the film on. I probably should have just let that go. But when you start to get into the hearing loss, uh, I definitely, you know, lifted from my own experiences. And I was like, nobody loses their hearing and is cool with it for a day. Like, nobody says nothing. Like, usually when your hearing goes, you're, like, immediately going up to people. Like, what? Like it's one of your five senses. When you don't have it anymore, you're going to be pretty, like, freaked out about it. Um, and he plays it pretty cool. Maybe that, maybe that's attributed to his character. He's certainly a unique individual, but, um, well, I think also when, when something like that shocking happens, you think, oh, this must be temporary. I, I must have like, you know, hit my head or, you know, it's, it's, it'll, it's gonna, it's gonna get better. Like when right, something does, really, the, really terrible happens, like, he's yes. like, oh no, it, it'll, 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 it'll come back. And there is a subsequent break breakdown that follows that is, that is earth shattering you know very very shaking because these these two musicians they're literally on tour this is their whole life this is how they make money this is their art like this is everything so the idea that suddenly you can't do it anymore is is heartbreaking i mean it's 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 tragic and and his 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 girlfriend lou 
works through it with him, talks, talks to his, his AA sponsor from four years ago. Hey, we, we need to work through this. And he ends up, yeah, find, finding a community where he can kind of adapt. And of course it takes time to kind of get there and, and, you know, learn, learn how to be different. And ultimately I think where the film takes a turn that, that was surprising for me is it's not just a 90 minute redemption story of, Oh, he joins this community. It's hard at first, but then he comes around and learns, learns ASL and then everything's good. Doesn't really do that. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't just give it to you like that. It, it's actually quite different. And that's, that's what was so interesting. The second act of this film is really fascinating. Yeah. It, like I said, we, so we meet a really interesting uh, character um, played by um, Paul Racy, who plays the character of Joe, who he's kind of the leader at this, this deaf uh, therapy rehab center. And he, he's an incredible, I've never seen this guy before incredible performance there, there's a couple of really heartbreaking uh, moments in, in the film um, this guy he's done a lot of tv but he's a really important character in guiding ruben into what is happening he was you know he, he says i've been there i know like i lost my my hearing in vietnam when a bomb went off like this is going to be hard this is going to be challenging but we're, we're here to help you to so you can learn how, how to how to be together or sorry how to live live with this how to how to be deaf that's one of the funny funny moments of the film when he has a to-do list and ruben's to-do is learn how to be deaf and it's like learning how you know learning to sign learning how to communicate when he without really being able to and i I looked this up one time asl takes like three to five years to learn to to be like completely fluent it's a long process that's longer than most most spoken languages um but also the second act avoids like i said a lot of these pitfalls a lot of things that you would normally see in an, an addiction story where someone goes back to rehab don't i don't want to get into the specifics of what that is but um it avoids a lot of the stereotypical things that are just meant to kind of pull, pull tears. Because again, it's not about, it's not about addiction. That just happens to be where these people are. Yeah. And I think that's part of what kind of, kind of pulled me out of, out of the experience. This film definitely takes some departures from like what you would normally expect, right? It's not, it's not just a typical um, hero's journey of, you know, challenge, overcome challenge, be better for it. it it's a little different. It, it's, it's, it's just a little over two hours long. And I, I remember at about the end of the first hour thinking, what is going to happen for the rest of this movie? <laughs> like it's yeah, kind I, of I wrapping thought, up. I thought, yeah. I yeah. thought that too. I was like, he's, he's deaf already. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Like you said, he goes deaf within like 12 minutes. It's just like, okay, wh- like where's the rest of this going? And it does go somewhere. It doesn't go where you'd expect. And I think in a lot of ways that's good. Uh, I also think in some ways, like those departures from, from the typical, they, th- for me, they led to confusing, confusing revelations. Like I, I, I was confused by the end of this movie. I was confused by some of the decisions characters make in it. I didn't understand why somebody with a history of addiction would be kicked out. I didn't understand why somebody with a history of addiction would be like scolded for, for, for certain actions they take for trying to better themselves. I didn't understand why, like, and and you, Andy, you and I should probably talk about it more. (laughs) I don't want to get into spoilers or anything, but there's there's certain things that happen in this movie that I just didn't get and and like I think that's a big part of the reason I didn't enjoy it as much and he obviously I, did yeah, yeah like, I was, I, it seems like it's pretty clear cut for you well I was gonna say that I, I know exactly what, what you're talking about and those things they made a lot of sense um, as they were explained uh, to me and, and and you're you're exactly right the the ending is not what you 
would think it is, and I think it's it's also very, it's a little kind of open to interpretation, but it, someone asked me that, you know, I've heard that movie's a downer. I, I don't know if I should watch it. And I was like, to me, it's not that. To me, it is actually, it's uplifting. Um, while there are struggles and challenges that our, our characters encounter and overcome o- overall, like it's not Requiem for a Dream. It's not. <laughs> no. Where everyone, everyone <laughs> no. ends up dead in a ditch. Like, um, I also wanted to talk about performances. So Riz Ahmed yeah. is, his, his performance is incredible because he, he has to do a lot of, you know, act acting deaf, like learning sign language, all the, those sorts of things, as well as being a musician. Is And the thing is, it's not like <laughs> I'm reminded of Hillbilly Elegy, which just looks like Oscar bait. Like you believe that these are real characters in these situations and not just someone trying for an actor. Cause he, d- he doesn't really have these big, like he doesn't have a big monologue or a, a scene where he like, you know, sp- smashes everything or, you know, like c- kind of the stereotypical Oscar scene. It's just, he's very convincing in this role as a m- musician who's a recovering a- addict and is losing his hearing. He's incredibly convincing. And then, then like, like I also said, uh, Paul Racy as the uh, kind of head of this, uh, ther- uh, therapy rehab center is also incredible. Yeah. So I wanted to weigh in a little bit of the history of the production behind this. I did a little research for it. Uh, so this was originally a, a work of docu fiction, right? A documentary, a fictional documentary that appears real. Uh, it was based on uh, Derek Cian France's uh, docu fiction called metalhead, which he shot in 2009, uh, that's when he finished that movie. It was actually filmed with two members of a band called Jucifer, which I've never, I feel like I've heard the name, but I've never heard the music. Um, apparently he's been sitting on this, like basically finished film uh, since 2009 for 10 years. And he hasn't done anything with it. Derek is the director of the place beyond the pines. And one of the mm-hmm. screenwriters for this work of docufiction was also the writer for the place beyond the pines man named, uh, Darius Martyr, right? Uh, right. I never he's, saw. He's Place the Beyond director, Pines. yeah. Right, he's he's the writer and director of this film. Apparently, uh, Derek C. in France just just asked Darius at one point straight up. He's like, "Can you just like make this movie?" Because I could. <laughs> like he had the footage, and he was just like, "This just didn't come out to what I wanted it to be." So that that's just been shelved, yeah. And and in its place, this was made. Sound of Metal. Riz Ahmed signed on to do it originally. Um, they had a couple other people that were going to sign on and that didn't really work out, but, um, Riz Ahmed for this role learned drums and learned ASL or at least enough to, to pass in the film. Like he was very particular on doing that, really mm-hmm. dipping into the role, bleached his hair, Olivia cook had a bunch of stuff done. Apparently in the film, she, she does play the play guitar herself. Like those, that is her playing it. Um, so, th- so they were definitely particular in getting into kind of the method parts of it and it plays man. Like Riz Ahmed seems to genuinely be invested in the role. He's gone on since and said, Hey, more, more, you know, there should be more options for deaf actors and actresses. Uh, me- much of the cast in this film is actually deaf. Um, and they're signing for real. A lot of the people who are at kind of his home and one other bit of presentation, I think is really interesting for this movie. Um, you, if you're watching this on Facebook and this, this bit might get pulled because <laughs> it's content DMCA or whatever, but uh, it's worth mentioning. You can see the subtitles for this. I'm going to turn this off. So we're watching this on YouTube. Like I don't have subtitles turned on. The, these are turned off. The trailer for this movie comes with subtitles attached. When this movie ran at, at, at Sundance, it ran with subtitles on it. They specifically made it to run with subtitles because they wanted it to feel 
like you're going deaf over the course of watching the film as a big part of the sound mix as well. They wanted it to feel like from the beginning, you're watching this thing like a deaf person would experience it. It wanted to, they wanted to bring you closer to the film. Apparently when it went to Amazon prime, Amazon was like, that's a great vision, but we're going to confuse the hell out of people. If we mandate it with subtitles, Um, and they didn't want to put a thing at the beginning. So it doesn't actually run with subtitles. When you watch the film, you can turn it on if you like. I did because again, I've got a hearing thing, but for what it's worth, I think that's an interesting, interesting point, right? Like they clearly yeah. went to some work to make this film work. And, and, and I think it plays. I watched it with without the subtitles. And that's interesting as well, because you get, you know, there's once he goes deaf, you know, people talk to him and people, you know, and he just doesn't understand anything. And so you are put in his his shoes where you don't understand anything that's being said to him. Yeah. Uh, as and well. And, and it's worth mentioning in those bits, they do not throw you subtitles. Like you are hearing what he hears. So when he can't hear anything, you don't get anything down there. There's no like, Oh, here's what they're really saying. Like, Nope, you don't, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's actually really well designed. Yeah. I wanted to talk about uh, Derek C on France. Uh, he also made a film called blue Valentine with Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Uh, oh God. 2010. <laughs> it's a great film and, and place beyond the pines. And he seems to, to kind of gravitate towards these stories uh, that, are that are tragic but also kind of uplifting in a way like they speak to real human experience and kind of how how we the positive things that we can kind of get out of difficult difficult times because if if you've seen all the three of these films like they kind of have similar theme themes that way um i love love blue valentine but it's it's a heavy one (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny. His most recent work, he did a six episode miniseries on HBO starring Mark Ruffalo as a set of twins called I Know This Much Is True. Then that sh- I thought that show like won Emmys. I thought that show was like super hot. Yeah, so for what yeah. it's worth, he's still doing work, but he hasn't actually made a film since 2016 when he made The Light Between Oceans, which is a movie like nobody went and saw. But he's, he's definitely a talented director. I haven't seen Blue Valentine. I haven't seen The Place Beyond the Pines, but I remember hearing about Blue Valentine back in film school and people were like, good God, if you want to watch the next Rock Cream for a Dream, watch Blue Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> that is that that movie is supposed to be a bit of a downer, right? Like fundamentally. Yeah. That's yeah. that movie. That movie's about the end of a relationship, yeah. but it's kind of a cautionary tale uh in that way as well and then place beyond the pines also you know very heavy uh human drama yeah so i think it's fitting that this film kind of has a bit of that dna in it like it's it's not quite his thing but it's certainly his vision um but carried out by um a very talented writer and otherwise i mean seemingly talented director darius martyr's first picture this is pretty good stuff yeah like like we were saying a lot of people are talking about gary oldman and mank for best um best actor but i i think riz ahmed is definitely should be i think he should definitely get a, a nomination for this role he's very good yeah very tremendous any other thoughts or recommendations i think i'm ready to go me too I, the only the other thing i want to commend is the sound mix in this film and you said at the top but like it really is tremendous the, on top of the subtitle stuff like they went to a ton of effort to make this stuff work and there's some developments towards the end of the film that we haven't talked about here that are um tremendous so, Andy, would you recommend Sound of Metal? Yeah, absolutely. This is, I'm going to say this is the best thing I've seen in 2020 uh, so far. I was really surprised, really blown away. Like I said, it it's a unique story. It's not about what you think it's going to be about. It, it avoids a lot of stereotypical uh, and cliched pitfalls in in that happen in addiction stories or, or these kind of uh, rehabilitation stories. It's not about what you think it's going to be about. The sound design is, is incredible as you, 
experience things from Ruben's perspective and also other people who aren't losing their, their hearing. But the, the sound design is a really unique uh, part of the experience of, of the film. Um, great performances, like we said as well. So I highly recommend it. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I, I, I recommend it as well, I think. I'm not sure who exactly I should recommend it to. I'd say definitely people who are fans of indies, definitely people who are fans of art house cinema, and definitely somebody who needs a different kind of movie. If you're just like, I, I, I don't really know what I want to watch. I just want to watch something different, something human. I, I recommend sound of metal. It's really unique. Like it's, it's a really interesting picture. And like I said, it is not just this atypical story. It takes some turns, <laughs> like really, really captivating and genuinely confusing to me. So I'm anxious to talk to Andy after the show about it. Um, so he can help me sort out my, my, my <laughs> com- complex thoughts, but um, tremendous work. I, I also think this film will, probably come up at the oscars i hope it does anyway it'd be a shame if it didn't so yeah that's sound of metal and that's our show for the week andy what are we watching next week so a couple of streaming numbers uh the midnight sky which is a new netflix film starring george clooney and oh i can't remember her name right now but uh it this is the kind of sci-fi movie where george clooney's in the uh the arctic and he has to get a message to astronauts in space this is going to be on netflix on christmas day i believe but it is also coming to theaters and that's where we're going to watch it and then we're also going to be looking at happiest season which is kind of a christmas themed rom-com on hulu uh Starring oh, I've Kristen Stewart, Dan Sorry. Levy, Aubrey Plaza, and who's the other one? I don't know. I don't know who it is. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on everyone's na- name, yep. but uh, it, it's it's a it's a Christmas rom com, uh, but it's actually about a, a same sex relationship um, where they have to kind of. Uh, Kristen Stewart plays the lead, and she has to kind of come out about her relationship to her conservative parents. Um, sounds, sounds like a real cut, but it is a, a comedy. So we're going to be uh, watching that as well. Yeah. It's been trending on, on Hulu. That's, that's where it's available. Uh, Midnight Sky will be on Netflix. Like we said, a little later or in theaters, if you have the means, um, happy season has been trending on Hulu. I've seen a lot of memes about it. We were looking for something to watch. I thought, Hey, this is, this is kind of popular. It's definitely probably not made, um, for, for, for two dude film reviewers, but you know what? We're pretty open-minded. We're millennials. Like what the hell? I'll give it a shot. Supposedly it's some good comedy and Hey, it's got Dan Levy and I love that man. He's the best. Um, so yeah excited to watch it if you enjoyed the show today if you liked our review of mank or sound of metal maybe didn't like it if you got any hot takes on this warner brothers stuff email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com check out our website offscriptfilmreview.com message us on facebook where we run the show live every single tuesday with trailers and articles and our beautiful faces on webcams you can check us out on instagram we're on youtube where our archive goes up we're on all the usual podcast outlets where you can hear the audio version of the show it might be where you're listening to the show right now and if you are listening to it on one of those audio audio outlets do us a favor and leave a rating and review real quick just takes a minute i swear i know we ask like every single week but dude it's super important and it genuinely helps us more than you know and if you can't if you're too busy if you just can't do that the least i can ask you to do is just subscribe just hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes of off script every single tuesday straight to your phone you can hear hot movie reviews hot movie news and more about the movies from us right here every single week And we'll be back next Tuesday, of course, with more. So from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.